we just had, if you didn't know, Easter was last week. And um, so we're starting, we always launch some kind of new message series the week after Easter. And um, so today, you know, if, if this is your first time here ever, you came at the beginning, at the launch, the genesis of a new message series. So it's a kind of a big deal. We're going to talk about the book of Exodus for a whole bunch of weeks in a row. Um, so you're going to want to stay for all of those weeks and check it out um, in the weeks to come, all the way up through June. And our, so we're beginning right at the beginning of that book, and our reader today, our lucky reader, it's a big passage, is Karen. Today's reading is Exodus 1, 6, 2 to 10, and Exodus 2, 23 to 25. They can be found starting on page 53 of the Bible's next year seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. First Exodus 1, 6 to 2, 10. <laughs> now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, labor and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Exodus 2. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. <laughs> Perfect timing. 
Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God of grace, as the sun shines through these windows into this space where we're meeting together, um, some of us may sit here and our, our lives are not very sunny and uh, there couldn't be a greater juxtaposition for us as we come and we look for hope and we try to believe. Others of us come and um, the joy of either having children or having a relationship or having things go well at work or things go well in other ways this week have made us thankful and grateful and a, a sense of your presence has been felt perhaps this week, perhaps this day. And um, some of us come and we're just somewhere in the middle. We're maybe suffering or maybe we're bored. And we wish we could wake up to something spiritual, something more real than what we're feeling. And from all these places, we come and we look to you. It seems like our journeys are so thoroughly different and yet they're marked by the same thing. All of us. All of us are more of a mess than we care to admit to each other and often to you. And we come before this story and this book and this, um, this reality of, of your being. We come to you and you say through your work that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And may you then speak to our mess and our brokenness, speak to our tears or to our joy, today through these words of grace. May it be you that we see and that we experience, that we meet with today, and may it change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're, uh, we're reading about, a, reading from the book of Exodus, and the book of Exodus deals with issues of salvation, or as they would call it in seminary, when I was in seminary, it was called soteriology. You know, the study of salvation. Just one of those weird things. I don't know why, but they have to have a weird name for it instead of just saying study of salvation. Um, I rem- seminary wasn't, didn't have a lot of funny moments or enjoyable you know, stories for me. I, was, I wanted to get out there and, and, and get into people's lives and help people. and just, you know, I had this very you know, tangible-oriented thing going on bubbling up from inside of me. I had to spend this time in school. One of the fun moments at my particular seminary was there was this day, I don't know what it means, but it was called Dia, Dia Natalis, I think is what it was called, or Dies Natalis. And I, if you know Latin, you could tell me, but it, it, basically what we did is we had a, a dinner, and it was run kind of by the students, and the tables were turned because the students could pick on the professors. And it was usually towards the end of the year, 
and um, it was usually led by the, the, you know, the third or fourth year students. And there would be these odd things, like they would give, have a professor stand up in front of the whole crowd of faculty and students and, and give them an object and say, you have to give a children's sermon to all of us from this object. You know, think on your feet and do it now. And they would just play along. It was, it was a great turning of the tables that w- would happen. One bizarre skit I remembered, because sometimes it was a little bit like Saturday Night Live, some of the skits that would, people would come up with. One of them had these people acting like professors, and kind of dressing like them, and, and they took the most extreme examples of the professors that we had. And as these three or four characters were up there acting like the professors that were out in the audience, and it was all very funny, one of them um, was dressed up to look like uh, our Old Testament professor who happened to look, he was a dead ringer for Sean Connery. Um, without the accent, but I mean, he, when I, the first day I walked into that class, I was like, what, Sean Connery is teaching Old Testament? Um, and the movie Finding Forrester had just come out, and so this guy, he was very funny, um, his name was Chris, he, he had dressed up kind of like this guy with cotton ball beard and cotton ball chest hair coming out of his shirt, just like the guy, the Old Testament professor, and the only thing he would say, the whole skit, he would just suddenly shout out, Forrester! I mean, it didn't make any sense, but it was just hilarious and like a reaction to all the seriousness of seminary. It was perfect balance for that. So back to soteriology. So seminary, not necessarily my funnest years of life, but there was this issue of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And not every uh, seminary had Deus Natalis, but every seminary pretty much that you could find has a soteriology class. And it's all about usually hinging on a lot of stuff about Jesus, whose name was basically meant he saves. Um, And so, you know, a lot of Christian soteriology is about Jesus. For the ancient people of Israel, from within whom Jesus was first understood, and their whole story was a story from which Jesus' life and death and resurrection made sense. For those ancient people... They looked back to the ancient books of Scripture, and the book of Exodus very much was like a book about soteriology. It was like their curriculum on how God saves. And all the questions about salvation, what are people saved from? And what are they saved toward? And how does that saving take place? And all questions related to how we can expect God to enter into our world with his saving actions on our behalf. Exodus is like a curriculum for that. So we begin class <laughs> with uh, this curriculum beginning in chapter 1 and 2. And we're going to look at a big chunk of scripture, but just kind of boil it down real quick here to maybe 20 minutes in three points. And they go like this. First of all, in terms of God's salvation and his saving work, God often seems absent. And secondly, God gives servants a new song. And third, he has the broadest possible horizon in view. So God often seems absent. Uh, I wonder how many of us sit here today and there's some aspect of life where God seems absent. I wonder if you've ever been there in the past. I know that we'll be there, guaranteed some point in the future you'll be at that point where you, your working hypothesis will be that maybe God just isn't around. Maybe he's not present. Maybe he's not working. That's definitely the working hypothesis of most um, commentators who look at Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Actually, people writing about these chapters will say, God is not mentioned. 
It's very unusual. It stands out because all the chapters before this in Genesis and many of the chapters right after this are filled with mentions of God and God is doing this and God is doing that. In these two chapters, God is hardly mentioned. And yet all this significant stuff is happening. So the working hypothesis is that God is somehow absent. And definitely you can picture being, um, being living as one of the people of Israel if you were experiencing this stuff. You would, your working hypothesis would definitely be maybe God is absent. Maybe he's not around. Maybe he's doing nothing. Think about how it starts. We have this uh, powerful, mighty king of Egypt, and he does two things. First, he decides to crush the spirit of, or the collective spirit of this group of people by making them slaves, giving them a new communal identity of slavery, and giving them the gift of the inferiority complex that goes right along with that. He makes them slaves. And then the second thing is sort of a preemptive strike against their future fighting force. He gets the midwives on board, right? And he's got this diabolical secret plan to have agents of death at the birthing stool. I mean, it's really a scary idea um, that you see described here. And you can begin to imagine the self-talk going on within the people of Israel, just how they would orient themselves to these realities. I mean, at this point, it's, well, I guess God is... He's not really someone to be trusted. I mean, look at where we've gotten. Look at how cornered we are. Look how impossible it is. God can't be real in this happening. I guess all those Sunday school stories about God, you know, God is good, trust in God, I guess that's all just, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how God was there for them. I guess that was all just wishful thinking, just phony stories that we told ourselves. Um, I mean, we're cornered. There is no hope. Let's not try to make it worse by also believing that somehow all sudden we're going to be rescued. That's where we find ourselves quite often, right? One way or another, you know, our working hypothesis begins to be that God is uninvolved. God's not around. And our self-talk, what is your self-talk talk like when you get into situations where, if, you know, maybe you wish God is real, but you haven't seen any evidence Um, what is the self-talk? How do you talk yourself through that? Maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're a believer in all of this, and you still, you get to those points and and any sense of hope just kind of goes out the window and you start, you know, doubting it all. Where is God? He must not be here. I must have to take matters into my own hands, right? That's where most of us go. You know, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the self-talk of Christians, he gives us this picture of his own uh, self-talk that comes from Jesus. He says that Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul follows that up with his self-talk, which is, for when I am weak, I am strong. It's, it's the Christian language of dealing with the sense of God's absence or the sense of being cornered like the people of Egypt were. And so you see, sure enough, you think God's not at work, God's not present in the the beginning of this book. Well, notice what happens. In verse 20, or verse, yeah, verse 20, it says that the people increased and became even more numerous. All the attempts of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to to push them down, to, to keep them from growing, they just become more numerous. His, his plans backfire. And who's actually, if, it's kind of interesting, you have 
some of the weakest members of society who, in a sense, one of the lower positions, uh, midwives were even lower than just ordinary women because of usually it meant they didn't have their own kids and there was sort of a slaves within the slaves that these midwives would have had for the people of Israel. Sorry to midwives today, I know that's not, sorry, midwives out there. Um, but in, in, in this day, it was, it was kind of like, okay, the, the lowly midwives. And what do they do? They foil the plans of Pharaoh on their own. So there's this great sense of my power is made perfect in weakness. And, and th- yet, so this is how bad it gets. As soon as that happens, as soon as they become more numerous, then we immediately hear about the next plan of the king um, which makes everything seem hopeless and terrifying again because now the order is to throw every baby boy of the Hebrew people into the Nile. And this is now not some little secret plan behind closed doors. This is, this is public policy with the strength of the Egyptian army behind it. Uh, another preemptive strike, a preemptive drowning of the fighting force of the Hebrew people. And then what happens? Another lowly, powerless woman on her own foils this plan of Pharaoh for it to suppress these people. Let me, let me describe. I don't know if you caught this, but Moses' mother basically decides to obey that decree. She says, okay, throw all the babies in the Nile. Okay, put the baby in the Nile. And you can kind of hear her thinking, didn't say anything about a basket. You know? <laughs> okay, so she puts him in a basket. She, and then, so because she's following this diabolical decree and actually doing, putting the baby in the river, that's how the liberator makes his way into the palace walls to be raised with all the privilege and the connections to be able to effectively lead this people out of slavery. You get a you sense a theme. This is a spoiler alert for the book of Exodus. Every attempt that Pharaoh makes to push down these people, to oppress them, every, every act actually undoes itself and goes against what Pharaoh's trying to do. And so what are we taught here in this book of soteriology? When you're cornered, when things are hopeless, when you don't know if you can even grab hold of a scrap of a sense of God's presence and it looks hopeless, there's just a very clear, simple answer that God has not stopped working. It goes against every grain in our bodies. We think we can see, we think we know how it looks for God to answer our prayers. We think we know how it looks for him to be active and real. This story shows us over and over again God doesn't seem present on the surface, but he's at every step using the weakness and the weak elements in the story to bring about strength and power for his mission and the thing he's trying to accomplish. Do you have that at all, that view at all in your self-talk as you go about life? Um, I love how it's, in a sense, this exact kind of self-talk is summarized in Isaiah 8, verse 17. I'll just read it. It's very simple. This verse says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Three basic verbs. I wait. He hides. I trust. I wait. He hides. I trust. Now, I know that 
in practical terms in daily life, that's very difficult to apply. That's very difficult to grab hold of. But that is the internal self-talk that we're taught here in chapters 1 and 2. And of course, if you expand things, you get the same theme played out in the New Testament when there's two death orders in the life of Jesus. I don't know if you kind of catch the connection. The death order when Jesus is born, all babies in Bethlehem killed. And then the death order at the end of his life, crucify him. Two death orders in the life of Jesus. Two moments of weakness, exasperation, hopelessness are turned into what? Christmas and Easter. There are big salvation events that we celebrate in the Christian church. So you can, of course, play a lot of these themes out all the way to, to Jesus. But I'll move on to point two, and that is that God in his saving work, he gives servants a new song. He gives servants a new song. When you look at, um, I, I just love this, this fact that you notice when you, um, you know, this is where seminary comes in handy because in verse, chapter one, verse 13 and 14, there's all this repetition in the Hebrew. And if you read these verses, um, I won't read them as they are in the text here because we already read it, but if you read them almost more literally, without all the smoothness that the translators usually bring to it, it sounds a little bit like this. The Egyptians, like this would be a a more literal straight across reading. The Egyptians uh, made Israel serve severely. They embittered their lives with severe serving. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of serving, in fields and in all kinds of serving, they served them severely. That's, I mean, you can see why it's, okay, let's clean that up a little bit. Let's, let's use the word labor instead of serve it, you know. But that, that's literally what, it's kind of like this depressing, monotonous song of service. Um, it reminds me of um, something not as depressing, very silly, but the, the, doc, the mockumentary Waiting for Guffman, um, where there's this off-off-Broadway show that's done in this small town. A lot of very silly things. One of the things in the play is they're singing this song, and I want to make sure I don't get it wrong. So it goes, they're singing this song about the stool boom, about making stools in the factory, and they say, they have this little mantra, and it goes, working, building, never stopping, never sleeping, working, building, some for keeping, some for selling, working. It's just this very silly thing, and they're kind of doing this while they, you know, while they sing this song. Very silly movie. But it's the same kind of image comes to mind of this. This is like a depressing song of service, this monotonous life. And what is it all pointing to? Why did I go back to, to show you the awkwardness of this, this kind of negative song of service? Because that word serve, it's the same word over and over. The Hebrew word abad, which also has a little bit of a connotation of worship, And where this word comes up again is when Moses comes before Pharaoh later on in the book and he says, and a lot of us will know this line from movies and whatnot, he says, let my people go. But it doesn't end there because he always follows it up with to go out into the wilderness to avad, to serve. God is transforming the nature of the serving that these people are doing. They're serving uh, an oppressive ruler uh, who's piling the burdens on their shoulders and got only by God acting and freeing them from that oppressive burden dis- with decisive acts in real time, in real history, will they be able to then get to the point where they sing a different song of service to God? And you can actually find that song in chapter 15. Um, so God is about changing their song and 
changing, giving servants a new song. I wonder if that, there's a sense in which just that concept resonates with you at all. The idea of the way Psalm 40 puts it is, he put a new song in my heart. Is there, is there a sense in which, you know, you look at your life and you say, where, what song am I singing? <laughs> you know, you, you look at the, all the acts of service that I'm doing for, for who, whoever is in my life. Who's being served by my life? And how, how am I holding up under the burden of the demands of whatever it is, whether it's um, approval, whether it's running away from things because of my fears and wanting my life to make sure it doesn't look this way, but it looks this way, and the oppressive burdens that go along with that. Uh, maybe it's, um, maybe it's just, just money. I'm serving the demands of wanting and needing more, or comfort, um, or expectations, or approval. What is it that you're... You know, what's being served by the actions in your life and how are you holding up under the strain? Because you have Jesus saying, this is what Jesus, basically what Jesus speaks into this issue. He says, come to me. This is the call of Jesus for, for all of us today. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the only master, the only spiritual master you can have in your life that won't pile on the burden any further. In fact, he's the only one who can take the burden away. That's what Christians believe. That's part of our self-talk is that, that Jesus' decisive salvation act in history put our burden on himself to take it off of us so that he could say, as, as you play out that saying, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. And then he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. It's often very reverse to how we think about coming, becoming right with God, having a relationship with God. We think, get ready for the burden, get ready for the guilt, pile on the rules. Come to me. My burden is, is light. My yoke is easy because of his decisive act of salvation on the cross. Now, um, the last point is that God has, when he's saving, when he's acting in our world, he has the broadest possible horizon in view. And just real quickly, it, this is another um, Bible nerd kind of thing, but just walk with me in this. Um, in verse 7, just a minute ago I was a little bit deceptive because I, I basically said that right from the beginning things look hopeless with all of Pharaoh's activities, but it actually, before Pharaoh is even mentioned, before the king of Egypt does a thing, God is already at work in verse 7. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. That's evidence, actually. If you know kind of the history that's gone up to this point, that's evidence of God carrying out his plan <laughs> right there. Because they're multiplying and being fruitful. If you really know your Bible, um, that maybe even sounds a little familiar. If you go back to right after the flood, what was Noah saved and what was his whole family saved in from drowning in the waters? Well, it, you maybe notice the footnote in your own Bible. The word for basket that Moses was in is exactly the same as ark. And when Noah was saved, after the ark and the basket saved him and his family, then you get these words, be fruitful and increase in number. This is God's 
words of what needs to happen. Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And then you go back just a little bit further. And you get to chapter 1 and God creates human beings. And he says to them, first words of God to people, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's When we read in Exodus chapter 1, before any of the bad stuff's happened, that they're being fruitful and they're multiplying, God's plan is being carried out. And it's not just going back to Moses saying, or it's not just going back to Abraham. That actually might be what you'd expect as you're reading along in this book. Right away there'd be, oh, and God's carrying out some of the words he said to Abraham. It goes further back from before there was a mess in this world. It goes all the way back to creation. So as the story is beginning, God's at work already restoring creation or all of the cosmos and it has everything to do with what God actually says in, in those passages I just read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. Both times, they follow right at, up after a mention of these human beings being God's image bearers, made in the image of God. So be fruitful. Multiply. Before the king has done anything, before Israel does anything in response, God's at work getting his image bearers um, to really, in a sense, do what they were created to do. This is going all the way back to creation. This has the cosmos in view and God restoring things to what he intended initially. In a sense, this is exactly what God is getting at. Um, when we read uh, first, or, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, this is a familiar verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and then as it goes on, this, this is the part that's not always read along with it. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is Israel saved for? What are we saved for in Christ? To go to the land of milk and honey and enjoy it and live the dream, live large? No, to be reinstated on this earth in all aspects of creation, all of creation, this is a wide horizon, to be bringers of the good life, reflecting God's goodness in every aspect of human life, in all relationships, in every kind of job, in every neighborhood. This is what our lives are called up into. This is, what, this is the sense of the calling that we're given. Um, there's uh, one way Jesus puts it at one point is that we would let our light shine, you know, that we would stand like on a hill, like a light. N.T. Wright, who writes a lot about the resurrection and the New Testament church, he says basically that the Christian church post-resurrection has this kind of broad you know, a cosmos horizon, and he says that the purpose of the Christian church is to, or of Christ's church is to plant flags of resurrection all over this creation. And I think one of the things we need to know is that it's not just about you as an individual, going and making your little difference, going over here and having this purpose. When Jesus says, let your light shine, when N.T. Wright is saying, plant flags of resurrection, he's talking about God's people together. It's a communal calling. I'll just close with this. Um, in his book, The Art of the Commonplace, in 2002, uh, Wendell Berry, who's a, a kind of famous novelist, essayist, and farmer, he talks about walking with his friend, Wes Jackson, they observed a plot of Maximilian sunflowers, a nearly 10-foot-tall plant native, or a plant native to the Midwest. 
So Wes Jackson pointed to one particular plant that was growing alone, disconnected from the community of other sunflowers. Wendell Berry observed that although this solo individualistic plant had grown very tall, it was clearly not healthy. The blossoms were thick and heavy, so heavy that the branches were starting to strain and break under the weight. Berry noted that in one sense, the plant had succeeded as a solo plant. After all, it was growing and it was unusually tall. But unfortunately, it had completely failed its intended purpose as a Maximilian sunflower. These plants only thrive and give life as they grow in community, not in isolation. And Barry concluded, we could say that achieving success solely as an individual was that plant's failure. When I think about that, when I think about that image, I think about a lot of our lives. I think about my own life. If you look at your own life, if you can get enough neutral distance from it, and a lot of us, we're, so, we're in such an, a sea of individualism, of me focus, that we can't even get that critical distance. But if you can, ask yourself the question, are you a lot like this flower detached from the field? Can't even, in a sense, you're starting to lose your ability to hold yourself up. You pursue a God who says, you know, I'm all about the flourishing of the cosmos and drawing you into that big horizon plan. And you reply, in a sense, with your lone voice, but could you help me out with this one little problem? Could you help me work out my dreams as well? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's nice, cosmos. <laughs> but could you do this little thing? Could you help me out? If you lack purpose, if you want to know your life means something, if you want to get caught in, up in something bigger than yourself and you want your life and your dreams to be big, then transplant yourself Connect yourself, interlock your life with others who are pursuing God. Link up and you'll be planting flags of resurrection. Your light will be shining and you'll be functioning again as God's restored image bearer. Let us pray. God of grace, uh, we need so much grace in our lives because we're living in a very ungracious world that judges us by what we do and what we accomplish how we look, how much we have, what we say. You come to us with a radical grace and yet you draw us into something so big. Help us to wrap our minds around our place within that. Give us community. Tear down our own personal walls to connecting with others. Uh, maybe we're not sure if everyone believes the same thing we do. Maybe we're afraid to sit in a small group with someone who thinks politically differently than we do. Take down our walls. And help us to find strength in being people who reflect you in this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.